Howdy. What's going on? Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. It is heard live every day, by the way, from noon until 3 on WBT Radio in Charlotte. And if you want exclusive content, invitations to events, the weekly live stream, my daily show prep with links, become a patron. Go to the PeteCallanerShow.com. This podcast is also supported by North Carolina businesses, so please consider supporting them. Try not to skip through their short ad. Make sure you hit the subscribe button to get every episode for free right to your smartphone or tablet. And thanks so much for your support. All right, so yesterday we had uh, the beginning of the closing. Sorry, yes, the beginning of the closing. The opening of the closing. The, the summations. The closing arguments from the state that was performed by Creighton Waters from the Attorney General's office. And uh, this morning began the closing arguments of the defense as delivered by Jim Griffin. I watched uh, most of it. He is now finished. I think they're now on, yeah, they're on uh, the rebuttal. So the, the state gets two shots. They get the, they make the first closing argument. The defense goes up and says, they didn't prove their case. And then the state comes back and says, yeah, we did. And then it goes to the jury after the judge gives them instructions. Um, so let me start, well, yeah, I'll start with this because this is what happened. Um, yeah, this is what happened this morning. Let me go ahead and start with what happened this morning. Before I go into the elements of the closing arguments in the Alec Murdoch trial, uh, in, uh, Colleton County, Walterboro, South Carolina, um, this morning, a juror got tossed off of the panel very nicely, I would say. But she got tossed because she had apparently discussed the case with two other individuals. And apparently this had been going on for a while, not the talking, but an investigation into this juror and the two other people that she had apparently talked with. And then like the judge and the lawyers in the case, they went back into judges chambers and they like talked to the juror and they talked to they got they got affidavits from the people that she spoke with. And so this morning, it all came out to us, to the public. Your Honor, we do not accept from your ruling. Um, I've sat through everything you sat through, and it's muddled, um, but we would defer to your judgment. All right, that's Dick Harputley in defense attorney after the judge said, you know, we're going to have to remove this juror. And... He's already, and you're going. This is sort of a glimpse into what the defense's argument is uh, at closing argument. This is what they're going to argue. It's not just about the judge. I think it's important for me to note for the record that the interviews of these two people were done by sled agents, one of whom was named as a witness in this case, and the other uh, who is was listed in the notes as being one of the investigating officers. Just to note that again, sled has made some bad, another bad judgment in this case. I'm not accepting from your ruling. I'm just pointing out that this is just a continuum of a calamity of errors. Thank you. And the the court has not um, had any discussion with any sled agents concerning this issue. Um, And uh, all the inquiry by the court has been uh, directly with the suspected parties involved and with the juror. Uh, and this is a matter that uh, this long trial with um, the intense publicity is certainly uh, it would be certainly difficult for any individual to not have some exposure outside of the courtroom to information concerning the case and to also um, 
be tempted to engage in discussions uh, with others, but it is improper, it is contrary to uh, my instructions to the jury um, daily, multiple times per day, and um, this juror unfortunately violated that uh, order. All right, so then they call the... um they, they get the bailiff to go get the juror. They bring her out. We don't see her because they keep the jurors hidden, right? So we don't see her. They sit her down, and the judge informs her that she is now off of the jury. But he does it He does it so very nicely. You have been a, a, a by all accounts, great juror and smiled consistently and have seemingly um, um, been attentive to the case and performed well and I'm sure that with all the time you've invested in it, you probably hate not to continue, or maybe you're ready to go. I don't know. Uh, but um, I certainly want to thank you for, for your service. Uh, I'm not uh, suggesting that you intentionally did anything wrong, uh, but that to, in order to preserve the integrity of the process and in fairness to all the parties involved, uh, we're going to replace you with one of the other jurors. Have you brought everything that you have outside of, you left some stuff in there? What do you have in there? A dozen eggs. Say it again? A dozen eggs. A dozen eggs? Yeah, one of the other jurors. <laughs> <laughs> one of the other jurors brought in eggs for everybody. Oh, the okay. Eggs, my purse, and that water. All right, well, you're going to leave the eggs? You want to leave the eggs or take the eggs? You're going to take the eggs. <laughs> so, Mr. Bailiff, can you retrieve from the jury room her dozen eggs, uh, her purse, and what else? And a bottle of water. That's unbelievable. <laughs> like, she brought a dozen eggs to one for each juror, I guess? Well, and the alternate. There were two alternates. So she had to have brought, th- maybe it was a baker's dozen of eggs. So weird. And then she's like, oh, I'm taking them back with me. I'm not going to leave them. You brought these eggs for the for your fellow raw eggs, I'm assuming. Maybe she boiled them. I don't know. But uh, no, she wants the eggs back. So go take them home. All righty. So that's what happened today. <sighs> Never a dull day. Like, good Lord. Um, let's start with Creighton Waters, Attorney General, uh, or, or, or I guess Deputy Attorney General or something. He's in the AG's office. Because the state had to come in here because Alec Murdoch is so interwoven in all the, you know, the legal community in that area, which by the way, the judge's comments there about, uh, it would be very difficult for a juror, for any juror, you know, to escape any kind of coverage of the case, even though he says, you know, don't watch anything about the case, do not discuss anything about the case, but because of the publicity surrounding the case, it's very difficult for somebody not to be able or, or not to be exposed to it or, you know, somebody, oh, yeah, you're on the jury. Oh, how's that going? Whatever. Now, I have no idea what, you know, so here, right, one of the one of the things you learn when you go and you cover court cases and such, especially on the high-profile ones, man, there's a lot of gossip in the courthouse. Holy smokes. There's so much gossip going on, and then you, uh, just in general, right, and anybody who works in the courthouse will tell you that's the case. There's a lot of gossip going on, but you then inject this high-publicity, you know, circus into the setting as well. You have all these P- 
people coming around and media, which traffics in gossip, um, all sorts of rumor, innuendo, and, you know, people trying to get a read on various jurors and such. And so, uh, you know, the rumor is that she was at least perceived as more of a pro-Murdoch vote. No idea if that's true, but that's some of the gossip that's flying around uh, the courthouse. All right. Creighton Waters. He starts off the um, the the closing. Well, he does the whole closing arguments, but he starts off by talking about the essentially these four categories that he wants the jury to focus on: motive, means, opportunity, and exhibited guilty acts. Right. So, does the defendant have the motive? Does he have the means? Does he have the opportunity to commit the murders? And does he exhibit any kind of guilty acts? after the fact or even before, but you can see these acts and then, you know, say, okay, these, all these things fall into all the evidence falls into these categories. Let me say. So the motive he went over at the beginning of the day, talking about the financial crimes coming out. He was about to lose all of his power, his prestige. It was all collapsing around him. Um, He would, he would be ruined basically. Also, I thought it was interesting that he doesn't really focus ever so much on the drug abuse, almost as if the drug abuse is the defense's uh, card to play. But I would submit that the drug abuse could actually cloud one's judgment, could impair them, their thinking, right? That they could be behaving very erratically and poorly and uh, psychopathically or whatever. But they never made that argument, so the jury doesn't hear it. Maybe they can, maybe they think that on their own, who knows? So he he lays out all the motive. I'm not going to go into all of that because the financial crimes were... Uh, you know, we've covered all of that. And the question then is, like, do you think that Murdoch uh, is so worried about the ruin that he sees this as a viable way to avoid that ruin? And the defense says no. The defense says that's ridiculous to make that leap from financial crimes and all of this. And he, he's going to go down for all of that stuff. And so he kills his wife and son. Why? It doesn't make any sense. So then the next category is the means and this is where the state goes into the forensic evidence that does exist in this case which is the weapons going over the uh, closing arguments now uh, that uh, started yesterday and uh, wrapping up if they haven't already wrapped up they'll wrap up uh, shortly so Creighton Waters says Alec Murdoch had the motive, the means, and the opportunity, and he also exhibited guilty acts. The, the motive, financial crimes coming out, his ruination, basically. Um, also, uh, the means, he says, family weapons were used. This is what he calls the forensic evidence in the case, specifically the 300 blackout rifle, which is now gone. They don't know where it is. And you've heard testimony that there were two blackouts purchased in December of 16 and that one went missing around Halloween of 17 years prior to these murders and that a replacement without a thermal scope was bought in April of 2018. Three blackouts that the defendant purchased can only account for one of them and it's this third blackout which is the one that's at issue. You heard from Paul's friend, Will Loving. And first of all, let me say this. You heard the defendant in his various statements 
And he's very concerned about saying that there's no, they didn't have a blackout. There was no blackout along with them, even though he slipped up once and said, yeah, we were out looking for hogs. And you heard from his law partners that do the same thing, saying, yeah, you can look for hogs in the daytime. Very, very concerned early on in the statements and saying they didn't have a blackout, they just had a 22 pistol. And he also said, eventually, He's like, well, I think I replaced it. Uh, well, I guess I replaced it. I'm certain I replaced it. If you listen to his various statements, very vague and fuzzy about this third blackout. Until the friends, Paul's friends, who one of whom, both of whom testified, but Will Loving in particular. And what did Will Loving say? The defendant said the gun went missing around Christmas time of 2020. But Will Loving said, no, I was with Paul. I was with Paul in turkey season, which is in the spring. I was with Paul in turkey season, and we sat out at the steps right outside the house that y'all went to today, right on that side entrance that goes into the gun room. And if you look down, you can see how they were digging a pond and how you could fire down in that area. And they set up some targets to sight it in. And we were shooting that other gun. We were shooting that other gun, that replacement gun. And it had a red dot sight on it. Not a thermoscope, but a red dot. He was with Paul while they were shooting that gun right there. And what did Jeff Croft, who testified before you, find right there? Weathered cases, or casings, right where Will said he and Paul were shooting that gun just a couple months prior to the murders. S&B, 147 grain, blackout rounds. And those rounds and empty boxes and the pictures are in evidence and the rounds are in evidence were found all over that property. S&B, 147 grain blackout. There were full clips found, there were empty boxes found, and there were also cases found, S&B, 147 grain blackout rounds found across the street at their shooting house two separate locations on the property. But what's really important, again, goes back to what Will said. I was with Paul when we shot that replacement gun right there. Right there. And you heard forensic scientist Paul Greer testify that the six cases, items two through seven, the six cases found around Maggie that killed her were loaded into, extracted, and ejected through the same firearm that fired those weathered cases right outside the door where y'all went to today and at the shooting range across the street. A family blackout killed Maggie. It was present just a couple months prior to the murders. It's gone now. Gone now. Pretty, pretty good piece of evidence. Now, the defense says... Well, SLED didn't compare the uh, the markings on the firing pins, the bottom of the, the bullet, you know, um, and that would have been a better way to match the casings. That would have been a better way. You could have gone to their little shooting range, dug some rounds out of the berm that they shoot into. You could have pulled some of those. You could have taken the ones from the crime scene and compared those. But SLED didn't do that. SLED didn't do that. And some of the casings that they have... They don't match. So not as not not quite as open and shut as the the state wants you uh, to believe. Now, um, 
Creighton Waters says that Alex Murdoch testified because he had to explain the lie. The lie about being at the kennels, where he said he wasn't for the better part of a year and a half. A lie that was only exposed after all that time when they finally got into Paul's phone. And that happened in April of 2022. And that's when they found the kennel video. After hearing multiple individuals of his family and friends and law partners get on the stand and listen to that video and say, that's him on that video, got on the stand for the first time and said, okay, I was there. He was forced into doing what he does all the time and that's coming up with a new lie when he's confronted with evidence he can no longer deny. And the only reason he did that, the only reason he did that is because all those witnesses at that witness stand said, yeah, that's him. He's there. Why would he lie about that, ladies and gentlemen? Why would he even think to lie about that if he were an innocent man? Why would he even think about that? But he got on the stand and he told you a story. And we're going to talk more about that story in a minute. But his story was, was that he didn't want to go down there. And then he went down there and, and he went down there really quick and got carried the chicken and went straight back. And he can't remember anything about what he talked about with Maggie. He can't remember their conversation at dinner. But he's, he's dadgum sure about the fact that he went down there and went straight back. But even if you give him the benefit of the doubt, his story doesn't make sense. Because that kennel video is 50 seconds. It's over at 8.45.45. Even if you give him the benefit of the doubt that he could take care of the chicken and maybe the fastest dog and chicken chase ever and put that chicken up and not say a word to Maggie and Paul and get on that golf cart and drive all the way back to the house, where does that put you? It puts you right at 8.49. At which point he claims he went inside and he managed to doze for a second. Then he's up at 9.02, perhaps the quickest nap ever. It doesn't make sense, ladies and gentlemen. It's a, a new story to fit facts he can no longer deny from a person who not a single person who was close to him knew who he really was. Not a single person close to him hadn't been lied to by this man. And I would submit to you that this one is the most blatant one yet. All right. On this count, I agree. I agree with the with the prosecution. I don't think Alec Murdoch would have ever told anybody he was at the kennels had the video not gotten out. And I don't think he would have taken the stand if that video didn't exist. He wouldn't have to. There was no other way for him to address it, though. There was no other way for him to get up there and say, "Okay, yeah, all right, fine. I lied repeatedly for like a year and a half in every single interview. And I always omitted that detail. And then he gave the explanation for why. But I, I, I agree. Like, I have, I have no doubt he lied about that, and I have no doubt that he would not have taken the stand had he not been caught in the lie by the existence of the video, which only came to light in April. Also, dude's a lawyer, former prosecutor. If, he, if he's trying to frustrate an investigation, he probably is you know, pretty well trained in how to do that. 
All right, are you prepared for a disaster? Do you need some advice? Are you looking for a military surplus that's real? Well, for more than three decades, the answer has been Old Grouch's Military Surplus in downtown Clyde. It is an old-school, traditional store. It's got a mix of modern and vintage items. See my friend Tim? He'll hook you up. He gets new stuff in all the time, American-made, because it's real military surplus. Camo, shirts, hats, customized dog tags, gear... Old Grouches on Main Street, downtown Clyde, across the street from the anti-aircraft gun. The shop is open Monday through Saturday and all the time at oldgrouch.com. So Alec Murdoch, lawyer, right? Former prosecutor, uh, personal injury attorney, uh, whose specialty is BS, according to uh, one of his former colleagues of the law firm that he was fired from for stealing all of the money from it, and... um, The prosecution makes this case in their closing argument that he was manufacturing an alibi with the phone calls, the different weapons. He's manufacturing uh, the trip to see his mom. That was all done intentionally to confuse investigators. Alec, the lawyer, Alec, the prosecutor, Alec is thinking through that we'll see he's manufacturing an alibi and he's also manufacturing the fact that there's two guns used. But we know, unlike the expert they call from Connecticut where they can't even get ARs, who doesn't know about people riding around on property, he doesn't know about Paul and the two guns he likes to use, he doesn't know about this family and how common those guns are together, says, well, his only conclusion is, oh, it would be practical for somebody just to, to, to fire out the clip. But this is him. This is Alec, the prosecutor, the lawyer. And he's thinking through this. He's thought through this. He's going to use two guns because it's going to confuse people that perhaps there were two shooters. But again, it doesn't make sense. Two family weapons. But again, you're basing that on the idea that because the AR is missing and it has the same ejection patterns on the outside of the casings, that that was the murder weapon. It's a pretty good I mean, it's a pretty good theory, pretty good theory. But as the defense attorney laid out later, circumstantial evidence, it has to be consistent with each other. All the pieces of circumstantial evidence have to be consistent with each other, and they've got to point conclusively to guilt. It can't just point to suspicious behavior. It can't just raise suspicions and then you find them guilty. Reasonable doubt is... Something that would cause a reasonable person to hesitate in one of the most important decisions of their life. And as Jim Griffin, the uh, defense attorney, uh, suggested, uh, buying a home, buying a car, big decisions, right? If you have a doubt about buying a home, it's a reasonable doubt. It's a big decision, right? You're a reasonable person. If you've got that, because remember... Alec Murdoch is presumed to be innocent until that jury comes back and says, you have proven this, that he is that he is guilty. He is presumed innocent. And so you have to you have to approach it from that uh, from that vantage point. Now, uh, back to Waters here uh, talking about uh, the manufacturing of an alibi and uh, the confusion, intentional confusion uh, in order to try to frustrate the investigation. You've seen the diagrams and the crime scene photos of that all those cases are in that area between the doorway to the feed room and where Maggie was found. You heard that Maggie had no defensive wounds. You also heard Paul and sibling from that first shot, a close range shot with no indication that he detected a threat from the person who fired that weapon. And why? Because it was him. 
Same with Maggie, because Maggie sees what happens and she comes running over there, running to her baby. Probably the last thing on her mind, thinking that it was him who had done this, she's running to her baby. While he's gotten picked up the blackout and opens fire at close range, again with no defensive wounds. After the murders, then the prosecution theorizes that Murdoch hosed himself off and put the hose back up. There's a hose at the kennels. He hoses himself off because he's covered in this, you know, blood and everything else. And so he hoses himself off and he throws the hose back up onto the hook or whatever uh, in a way that the, the guy who usually does the groundskeeping says that's not consistent with the way he put it up earlier in the day. Of course, somebody else could have used the hose at some point, but this is their... This is how they're saying he, he cleaned himself off after these gruesome murders. It wouldn't take long to strip down and wash yourself off. Get in that cart and head back to the house. <coughs> and then at 9.02, the defendant over there, who wouldn't even admit until forced to that he was even at the scene, all of a sudden... He is as busy as he has ever been. 902 to 906, 283 steps. 903, we see the system start up on the car, and that could mean that he's close by the car. Has he returned with Maggie's phone and placed it in that car? And then what do we see from 902 to 906? Not only is he 283 steps in that four-minute period, but he is making calls like crazy. And I asked him, I said, what were you doing? What were you doing? And and even though he has a photographic memory about things that he thinks will convince you, he could not answer what he's doing during this four-minute period that is so illustrating of what we're talking about here. That for four minutes, he is not only going 283 steps, 283 steps, and they put in the distance. We heard the distance isn't as accurate, but it's... it illustrates the point. That's 208 meters. Meter, you know, roughly is a yard, a little bit more, a little bit less. I don't remember. Let's say it's 600 feet. It's a lot. And he couldn't remember what he was doing. I asked him, you been on a treadmill? Were you doing jumping jacks? What were you doing at the same time you're calling all these phones? Why is he calling multiple times? We can see right here. He's, he calls Maggie. He calls Randolph. He calls Maggie again. All of that four-minute period where he's moving around, but he couldn't remember what he was doing, just getting ready. Is the prosecutor, the lawyer, manufacturing his alibi? Because he knows he's got to get to Alameda quick. He's got to compress those timelines, and that's exactly why he knew to lie about being at the kennels to start with. He's got to compress those timelines so that it would convince whoever down the road that he couldn't have done. So this raises another question when they, and nobody has an answer for it and it doesn't prove anything either way, but it's one of the questions, you know, why, why not call, why not ride down there? Why not like, him not going down to the kennels before he leaves? It doesn't prove that he did it, but if you're calling her to let her know that you're leaving, and I've said this before, if I called my wife and I, and, and, and she didn't answer twice in a very short period of time, she would think there's something wrong because I'm calling twice, and I would think there's something wrong because she's not answering. But So if you're leaving and you're just wanting to tell her you're leaving, why not just swing on by and say, hey, I'm leaving? 
But it, I, I think maybe for the same reason that he didn't want to say he was down at the kennels either at the same time. He then goes to his suburban SUV and his key fob wakes up the system. And they know this because they got the OnStar data from GM. System startup, 90556 in the suburban. And then this is interesting. Maggie's phone has that orientation change to portrait two seconds before Alex's second call goes in to her phone. So why why is her phone changing its orientation from portrait to landscape at basically the same moment that Murdoch is that Alec is calling her? And why doesn't she answer? She he just called her. Why doesn't she answer? And so the state is saying she's already dead. That's why. There isn't another explanation that the defense offered except to say, so what? If you don't answer your phone, that means that's when you died. And so, yeah, like this is this is going to be tough. I don't, I'm not sure that they're going to get all 12 of those jurors to agree beyond a reasonable doubt. But I never make predictions on jury outcomes. Jerry Richardson, the founding owner of the Carolina Panthers, has passed away. A business leader and philanthropist died peacefully last night at his Charlotte home, according to his family, uh, in a press release that was shared uh, by the uh, organization. He was 86 years old. Funeral services will be private. A public celebration of his life will be held at a later date. Um, There's another second. Where did it go? There was a statement from. Where did it go? thought I had another. Oh, here it is. The statement from uh, the new Panther owners, David and Nicole Tepper, who say, quote, Jerry Richardson's contributions to professional football in the Carolinas are historic. With the arrival of the Panthers in 1995, he changed the landscape of sports in the region and gave the NFL fans here a team to call their own. He was incredibly gracious to me when I purchased the team. And for that, I am thankful. Nicole and I extend our deepest condolences to Rosalind, the entire Richardson family, and their loved ones. We wish them much peace and comfort. So Jerry Richardson, uh, local uh, local resident, but also what uh, was it? Uh, what was the what was the the restaurant chain that he was with? with Hardee's? No, Hardee's? Boj- Hardee's? Or Bojangles, not Bojangles. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, yeah, the things you forget as you get to be my age. Ripe old 49. Uh, so prayers and uh, condolences and comfort to the family and friends. Uh, and uh, my gratitude for bringing the Panthers here, because I was here in 95 when we got the team, and he brought it here, and it's very exciting. And uh, it's been a part of my life ever since. So uh, thank you to the Richardsons. Um, and, uh, again, our sympathies to their families. Um, all right, let me go back now to the back to the uh, closing arguments. Closing arguments in the Alec Murdoch trial underway, uh, started yesterday, carried through to today. The jury, at this point, uh, probably has it uh, by now, although the judge's instructions, th- th- those things can last a long time. But uh, even so. The prosecution says that their theory of the case here is that uh, Alec Murdoch murders his wife and son and then grabs up the, you know, hoses himself off at the kennels. He then uh, uh, strips down. He collects the murder weapons and the clothing. 
maybe wraps them up in that blue tarp, um, and then tosses Maggie's phone. And he does this, according to the prosecution, he does this as he's on his way to his mom's house. Again, as they say, he's trying to compress the timeline. And he's speeding to his mom's house 70-plus miles an hour. But they say, the prosecution says, that as he's on his way, he slows down in the area where the phone was found. He gets to his... Now, the defense disagrees with that. They say there's no proof that that is the case because the the phone wasn't secured properly when it was found, and so it kept pinging, and the pinging then erases over... It's like the new pings. After a certain amount of memory is used, it starts erasing the old pings, and so they didn't have the exact location of Maggie's phone at a particular time. He gets to his mom's house. He parks the car out back. He takes a whole bunch of steps around the back of the house before he calls his mom's caregiver, Shelly Smith, to let him into the house at that time. Oh, hang on. Uh, Well, people would park around back right there. Okay. It's also, though, near these structures. There's that line right there. But what do we see? From 922 to 932, we've got 195 steps taken. We have him calling Libby Murdoch, which would be calling the house two minutes later. And then from there, we have at 931 and 932, we have system startups on the Suburban, which you've heard from the experts could be from having that remote key in your pocket and walking near the car. 922 to 932 is the steps. In 9.31, you've got two system startups. And what did you hear from Shelly? That he called, but it still took a number of minutes before he came in. And that's about six minutes right there. So obviously, making the argument without actually stating it, that he's throwing the the murder weapons uh, and the clothing. He's disposing of these things on the property. He's stashing them there. Now, Waters does not address a point that I thought uh, is a bit of a a gap in their argument, which is that uh, Shelly Smith, when asked by the defense attorneys, she said he did not appear to be wet, right? So if he had hosed himself down, it's a 20-minute drive. But if he, I mean, think about it. If he hoses himself down, when does he dry himself off? Don't know. He wasn't wet when he got there. And he had no, there was no blood on him. The clothes that he put on didn't have any kind of, Uh, blood on them, despite what SLED originally told a grand jury. And that's why the defense argued in their closing argument that SLED had manufactured evidence. Well, we'll hear that. How did he hose himself off without any signs that he was, that he had done so? And if you're handling all the bloody clothes at his mom's house, if he's doing that, he didn't get any on him at that point. He's not there very long, but he is moving around a lot. And that key fob is is starting up the car's system. He tries to tell Shelly Smith later on, remember that, hey, you know, I was here 30 to 40 minutes. She got concerned about that. It made her nervous. She thought he was trying to affect her, her memory, her recollection. And the prosecution then mentioned that as well. And again, hammering away at this idea that Alec is a prosecutor. He tried to manufacture this alibi because he has to compress the timeline.